Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. and welcome to Under Consultation, the episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and bloody hell, 1996 was a busy year. Yeah, hi, I'm Ash Versus, and as we just discussed before starting recording, we've no idea if what we're about to record is going to be one episode or two episodes because we've got almost an entire year to cover, and it's a busy busy year it's a mad year 1996 because we are going from like like january 18th through to nearly the end of october so yeah you're right like it's nearly a full calendar year i know just before we started recording you said you had 15 pages i've got 17 pages of notes i've also got every games master magazine here from that period with some really quite cool bits of news and features and reviews in so strap yourself in folks we're gonna be taking a rapid tour through 1996 and one thing that just stuck in my head to start off with is you remember when we did that bad influence episode last week oh yeah i mean that's more or less what we're going to be having here yeah and you were critical of them for doing that oh i wasn't critical for doing it but i said it could have been shorter and i think me people bearing in mind like back in series two and series three for that matter in episode one we just sort of did a 10 15 minute chat 20 minute chat about like oh here are some of the films that we missed and give like you know two or three kind of sentences on each one and then we thought oh, you know let's let's dive into these a little bit more i think this may be the most indulgent uh episode zero that we have done which makes me think that when we get into the uh, one between six and seven it's going to be even more indulgent it'll be a three-parter it will actually launch a separate podcast just to cover 
the gap between Games Master Series 6 and 7. The funny thing is as well, is that, you know, I, I've got deep into the stats for, for this podcast as well, because that is one of the things that I do. And anytime that we're not talking about main timeline Games Master stuff, not very many people are interested. Like these episodes always do way less better than all the just main timeline ones. Oh, well, if you are listening to this, Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks, yeah. And if this is your first time here, so essentially what we do is we cover all of the movies and TV news and video game news and music news and kind of cultural events that were missed in the between seasons. So we ended on January 18th. We're back in the middle of October 1996 for Series 6. So we wanted to kind of like talk about some of the movies that we're going to miss because there's some big hitters that we've missed. There's some massive songs in here. There's some huge like cultural touch points that it would seem a shame for us not to talk about yeah i mean we have two immense summer blockbusters coming up and the launch of a literal cultural phenomenon uh with the spice girls yeah the spice girls are in this timeline euro 96 is in our in-between season so like we've got quite a bit to dive into so without further ado should we just get into this then Let's get cracking. And we kick things off with that 18th of January, the final day of Games Master Series 5, with Priscilla Presley filing for divorce from Michael Jackson. Moving on. (laughs) Which brings us to the musical number one that we did not get to talk about, which was George Michael's Jesus to a Child, which topped the pops on January 20th, 1996. It performed well in the UK, it performed well elsewhere in Europe. It was George Michael's highest debut in the Billboard Hot 100. It was a tribute to his late lover and was revealed sometime after Michael's death by Dame Esther Ranson that Michael had secretly donated all of the single's royalties to the charity Childline. Yeah, I mean, she told BBC News, like, this is yeah, years and years and years later after his death, that, like, he wanted to keep that a secret. It was, like, a personal gift to him and things like that. So, you know, it was a really, really generous thing for him to do. Uh, that, nine, that 2016 period, because we had, like, it, he passed away, as did Carrie Fisher, like, almost around the same sort of time. It was like, this real double hitter. Yeah, and of course, uh, particularly as time goes on, those celebrity kind of deaths always seem to come in twos or threes so i'm always kind of like bracing myself when one happens it's like oh who's next Mm. Uh, the following day january 21st a new uk box office number one with the nicholas cage classic leaving las vegas we're gonna let you go okay okay what are you gonna do now i thought i'd move out to las vegas my heart is crying, crying. I just need some cash tonight. Please, don't drink it in here. Ben wasn't looking for a fresh start. Five hundred. Five hundred dollars for a 93 Rolex Daytona. I'll do it. He wasn't looking for any trouble. I was wondering if you would buy me a drink. Do you mind if I buy her a drink? <laughs> and he wasn't trying to fall in love. <sighs> I really wish you'd come home with me. You're so cute. And I'm really good and bad too, believe me. No? Okay. Ah, yes, the cheery tale of a suicidal alcoholic in Los Angeles who, having been recently fired and lost his family, decides to move to Las Vegas and drink himself to death. It's a family film, Luke. It is, yeah. We've got Nicolas Cage, Elizabeth Shue, Mike Figgis was the director. We actually did really well at the the, uh, Academy Awards as well. Cage won Best Actor. They were nominated for Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actress. Uh, Cage also won a Golden Globe. Not that that really matters for anything. Based on a book of the same name, there was a video that was very popular. It's not available now on YouTube. It was a massive video on YouTube, like 
seven, eight years ago now called Nicolas Cage Loses His Shit. And it was just a compilation of Nicolas Cage going mad in movies. And there was a lot from Leaving Las Vegas because there's a lot of Nick Cage acting in Leaving Las Vegas. See, I'm disappointed it's only from the movies because have you ever seen Nicolas Cage on the set of Wogan? Oh, yes. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, like That's crazy Nick Cage. I mean, that's doing the whole kind of uh, Tom Cruise on Oprah way before. I'm really disappointed that video doesn't exist either because it was like a real good snapshot of, you know, people will watch that and be like, oh my God, what a terrible actor. Whereas I watch that video and be like, he's the greatest actor of our generation. Look at that man. That man gives it his all no matter what movie he is doing. On the 25th of January, Madonna receives death threats from Argentinians who are enraged and insulted that she is playing Eva Perón in Evita. After she arrives in Argentina, over 50 walls throughout the city have been spray-painted with the words Viva Evita, Fuera Madonna, Long Live Evita, Get Out Madonna. Amazingly, not the last time in her life she will be a controversial political figure. No, yeah, I mean, like, Evita was a, a quite a big release for, for 1996, and, like, her, her casting was a very, very controversial thing at the time, but also, like, I think in the world of Hollywood, it's not that controversial, because she's a big star, of course she's the big star in the big movie. Yeah, she can, she can sing. She can sing, that's all she needs to do. Yeah, she can sing, and she can act. She has done acting, and that is sometimes all that you need. Of all the singers that turn up in films, she is one of them. No, that's unfair. She's not bad, bad. Like, she was okay in Dick Tracy? The, the, the one she did with Guy Ritchie was real bad. I can't remember what the film was called now, but I remember everyone making fun of it at the time. The husband and wife duo making a movie. Yeah, doing the Paul W.S. Anderson kind of route with uh, Mila yeah. Jovovich. I think that in general with Madonna, the further she goes in her acting career, the worse it gets. Because we start with 1985, Desperately Seeking Susan. She was really good in that. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Who's That Girl, 1987, also pretty good. Then we've got the aforementioned Dick Tracy, uh, Breathless Mahoney and that. I've actually got the novelization of the Dick Tracy movie up there. It was a charity shop find on a recent trip away. And I'm going to revisit the film and then read the novelization because that's a film I've not seen probably since about 91, 92. Early, early comic book movie. Oh, yeah. And it's a fascinating little movie to look back on as well, because it is that early era of Hollywood comic book movie where they just assumed every comic book movie would be as successful as Batman 89. And that no matter what the comic book property was, it would just be as successful. And that continued years and years later. When I spoke with Stephen D'Souza once, he told me that Hollywood pre presumed mystery men would be as popular as Batman 89 because it's based on a comic book. I loved Mystery Men, but there was no way it was going to be as popular as Batman 89. It's an obscure comic book. Like it was like, they just always like, well, it's probably, it's got to be as popular as Batman. It's also a comic book. They also thought that video games were in the exact same thing. <sighs> but then we have a league of their own. Also pretty good. She's great in that. Yeah, she's absolutely great in that. Um, we have Evita. There's other films in between, but I'm just cherry picking the big ones. Then 2002, Die Another Day. I forgot that she's in that. Obviously, I know that she did the theme song, but I completely forgot she's in the movie. She plays the kind of madame of the fencing club. Uh, Rewatched it recently, not deliberately, more kind of channel hopping. And it's like, yeah, Die Another Day's on. I haven't watched this in a while. I wonder if it's still as bad. Oh, oh, oh. It is still as bad. 
as we uh, as we all remembered. But it looks like she's had enough of starring in other people's films because she is directing and writing a film called Little Sparrow, which is a biographical film based on the life and career of American entertainer Madonna. Oh, that's delightful. As we get into already one of our big songs of 1996, I would argue one of the most recognisable songs of the year. January 27th, Babylon Zoo Spaceman is top of the pops and will remain as such for the next five weeks. Thanks in part to that Levi's advert, Planet One, which is very, very well remembered from this time. And this was a fo- this was following a trend because this was like the sixth song to hit number one after appearing in a Levi's advert, because I think we previously mentioned Stiltskin Inside. We did, yeah. Which was another one, which was another one and done to a degree, because, I mean, Babylon Zoo, they had this song, they had their album, The Boy With X-Ray Eyes. Luke, what else did they do? I I mean, yeah, like they are categorically one-hit wonders. However, I have always gone to bat for Spaceman. It gets quite a bum rap now. Like I think people say it was only popular because of the Levi song, but I actually still think there's some really, really good stuff in there. I remember at this period of time hearing that advert or seeing that advert with the song and hearing the song and that Spaceman, I always... And being like, oh my God, that is a cool sounding song, that. And then you hear the full song and it's completely not what you expect it to be because it literally goes, pungent smells, they come to meet our home. And it turns into this completely different song. And then right at the end goes back into the Spaceman bit. I actually think there's a lot to like about that song. And I think that people are a bit snarky about it in the modern day era. It is, as a song on its own, pretty, pretty good. But if you go in to listen to it, having only known it, from the Levi Jeans advert, you are going to be a bit, what the fuck is this? What's going on with this? There was actually an edit made between the original promotional copies and the version that was released as a single, a removal of a vocal performance of the lead singer whispering, I killed your mother, I killed your sister, I killed you all. It's a dark song. Yeah, for some mysterious reason, when they kind of got the, the Levi money, that was removed. Although it still can apparently be heard in the background on some bits of the song. It's, yeah, I mean, it was a song that at the time, like when it came out, it was praised. You know, I've got this review here from Helen Lamont in Smash Hits from 1996. Uh, she writes, the intro sounds just like the advert, all high pitched and squeaky. But then everything takes a turn for the serious. Fear not, though. It is still good but in a charming slit-your-wrist-top-of-the-rock-charts kind of way. Wow, that's a line. Isn't it just? Yeah, but like, you know, a few years later, people are already starting to talk on this. Stephen Weldon, NME, wrote in 1999, millions of pop kids rushed down to Woolies to buy the single, only to get it home and discover to their horror that it was good, like in the advert, for about 10 seconds, and then it becomes rubbish, really rubbish. And Sarah Anderson, his colleague, agreed, saying, there can be few more crushing letdowns in pop than a full single mix of Spaceman by Babylon Zoo. I still think that is unfair. Although, I will say to go back to Stiltskin Inside, as a single, that was exactly as much of a banger as it was on the adverts. There was no kind of sudden tempo change. That that just delivered. But yeah, Babylon Zoo, I remember being kind of weirded out when I got that. Two different songs. There's the song that's in the adverts, and then there's the actual song. Yeah. Moving into February, and on the 4th of February, former Manili Vanilli band member Rob Pelatis is hospitalized when a man hits him over the head with a baseball bat in Hollywood while he was attempting to steal that man's car. So, it's all 
It's all sugar puns and fairies for Millie Vanilli. I didn't actually know you were going to drop that fact. <laughs> and so I was kind of reacting in real time going, my God, they hit him with a... Ba- oh, 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 after attempted <laughs> Grand Theft Auto. Well, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it's a real uh, real bouncer, that story. Uh, but on that same day here in the United Kingdom, Father of the Bride 2 is our box office number one. Grab your and get your For George Banks, life was good. It was wonderfully, uneventfully predictable. Hey! Hey, Dad, did you hear the news? What news? But not for long. Hi, Dad. <laughs> I know what it is. You bought a house, right? Man, I thought you guys were going to have a baby. <laughs> Get out of here. Tell him. I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> Congratulations, Grandpa. <laughs> Here's what I'm thinking. I want to look younger. Mm-hmm. Now it's out with the old. Young, right? <laughs> it's bitchin'. Bitchin'? In with the new. <laughs> oh, oh, hey, what do you think? I look like the guy you married, right? Kind of. George, what's gotten into you, honey? And, kids, you're gonna have a baby. He's right back where he started. Excuse me? It's interesting because this is a sequel to Father of the Bride, itself a remake of the 1950s movie Father of the Bride. But this is also a remake of the 1950s Father of the Bride's own sequel, Father's Little Dividend. It's actually a rarity because there have been various sequels to remakes, but it is rare that the sequel to the remake follows the pattern of the original sequel. You know, starred Steve Martin, Diane Keaton, Martin Short. It made some money. It was a Steve Martin film. It was top of the box office for one week. Yeah, it's basically, it is not as good as the first one. On February 9th, the entertainment show TFI Friday makes its debut on Channel 4, presented by Chris Evans. The show ran for six series for over four and a half years until the year 2000. Come in. Hello, Doctor. I've come about the uh, about the death certificate. Uh, do take a seat, Mr. Evans. Thank you. Okay. Uh, what is the name of the deceased? Top of the pops. And what was the exact time of death? Well, it's just very slowly over about the last ten years. Okay. Okay, that's all fine. Um, now, are you ready to identify the deceased? I think so. Okay. Sorry, I realise these things can be very distressing. Okay, here we go. That's... Okay, there you go. Thank you very much, Doctor. That's quite right. Oh, Mr Evans? Yes, Doctor? Uh, while you're here, could you take this one for the girly show? I was just recently watching some clips from TFI Friday. Uh, specifically, I was watching for when Cooler Shaker closed out the show with Mystical Machine Gun. And they had this whole bit where there's this whole spoken monologue of, you know, don't panic, it's just the end of the world. And Crispin Mills didn't want to read that bit out. He didn't feel quite comfortable doing it. And so they thought they'd see if they could find someone else to do it. And they did in Arthur Brown who said he would do it as long as his head could be on fire whilst that happened. He had kind of like a, a skull cap fire pit thing on his head and he lit it on fire. They did the dress rehearsal. And after that, Crispin said to him, he goes, 
was that it? Like for the fire? And Arthur just winked at him. (laughs) And then they get to the actual live take and it's two plus foot of flame like leaping off this guy's head as he really gives it some gusto. So I've got a lot of fond memories for TFI Friday. I don't think a lot of it holds up. No. The musical performances are great, but a lot of the in-between stuff is, oh, it's peak lad culture. It is such a laddie, anarchic show. It's proper counterculture television of like, this is not the sort of thing you'll be getting on The Beeb or on ITV or anything like that. It is a Chris Evans-led mad old time of him just hanging out with people that he knows, friends of his, the crew getting involved in various things. Honestly, it looked like it must have been a hell of a lot of fun to make. Probably quite stressful in the days leading up to it, but actual shoots were really, really fun. Bearing in mind, the you know the set is a bar. It's a, it's a pub. And then downstairs, there's this giant musical venue and stuff. Like you say, some of the musical performances are incredible. We've got one of them will be in the news in a little bit later on. But it is a, a real snapshot in time of what the late 90s looked like. Oh, absolutely. And also gave a massive amount of money and publicity to Ocean Colour Scene and Riverboat Song. Yeah, gr- a great song as well. And I think we told the story on the podcast before, but it is my favourite TFI Friday anecdote, which is that they had Sean Ryder on the show of Black Grape at the time. And Chris Evans said, look, I know you're a man who's known for swearing. And he's like, it's just the way that I talk. And he's like, I know it's just the way that you talk. But I need you to get through this interview without swearing. And if you do, I'll give you my shoes. Well, look, I, 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 let me tell you this. If you don't swear tonight, I'll give you my shoes. That's good. What have you got to ask yourself is, would you like these shoes? Uh, I'll find somewhere to wear them, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Patrick Cox, man, and Patrick's a f***ing good... Uh... <laughs> Patrick makes good shoes, man. Okay. So, so you see, that was completely natural. That was completely natural. Uh, it does. Patrick makes good John. shoes, man. I'm the cheaper than feeler. John, you can't, you can't do it again because I'm in big no, trouble if you do. No, right. It just gets so, fined, I do, yeah, we all get fined. Now we get taken off and everything. We can't have people like you on again. So we apologise for that. Sean, do your best for me, mate. Okay. It's a delightful story to the point where he was essentially banned from being on Channel 4 or any live broadcasts. What a guy. I think he's only been welcomed back since Celebrity Gogglebox. Maybe the Channel 4 commissioners saw his UFO series that's been airing on the <laughs> History Channel, which is genuinely amazing because it is exactly what it sounds like. It's Sean Ryder going around bits of America, talking to Americans that have seen UFOs. I'm Sean Ryder. As a 15-year-old lad in Salford, long before my hell-raising antics and I have been Mondays... I saw a ball of light whizzing about in the night sky as I stood at a bus stop. I knew there and then I'd seen a UFO. Ever since, I've been obsessed with all things extraterrestrial. But in no way being any different than what you'd expect Sean Ryder to be. He's like, all right, it sounds f***ing crazy. F***ing mad. (laughs) There's some great moments where he's kind of, they're out UFO spotting. Of course, surprise, they never see anything because, of course, why would they? But they just lay out there in the dark looking at the sky and he just starts kind of like basically rambling about his past and just some of the weird shit he's seen, but also then going, I did a lot of drugs then as well. The, the movie 24 Hour Party People with Steve Coogan, like it does a great bit of documenting the history of the Happy Mondays and 
the the various ups and downs that they had as a band following pills and thrills and belly aches i was a, a, a big fan of um uh, of the happy mondays i still am in fact really i, I will still listen to them and really really enjoy them but there was a period of time when they were sent by the record label to record an album but because they were so massively into a one drug they were like let's send them to a place where that drug isn't so they sent them away to record this album and then sent them to an island where a different type of drug was the taste of choice. They just got addicted to that drug instead, spent all of the money to record the album, buying that drug, recorded nothing, went back to the UK and then held up the record label for money to be paid up front unless they wouldn't give them the album. So they got the money, left and handed over the album. That was nothing. Amazing. On the 10th of February, Worms tops the video game charts, a game that we've talked quite a bit about on this show. I still have a lot of nostalgic love for, but I think you're more moving towards the Armageddon era of uh, of our little wormy friends. Purely because having recently played a couple of the Worms games via the Evercade Versus, man, going back to that first Worms after the various quality of life improvements you got in Worms 2 and beyond... It's actually fairly tough. Mm -hmm. It's a ropey old game, but I love it for it. Uh, On the 11th of February, Loch Ness is our UK box office number one. Yeah, amazingly, a Hollywood film that actually shoots where it's meant to, kind of, partly shot around Loch Ness, although they did end up going to another nearby area to shoot, probably one that was slightly less expensive. But this is kind of Ted Danson in his post-Cheers, post-Three Men and a Little Baby Lady era. Yeah, he's in that family movie era mould now. As you mentioned, he did Three Men and a Little Baby and Three Men and a Little Lady, which I I think both films are still fantastic. This one probably isn't as much. It's certainly not going to be as remembered as those. But, you know, it's Ted Danson, so it can't be that bad. Honestly, I've never seen it, but uh, I can't imagine it's that bad. It's Ted Danson. I remember it being featured on movies, games and videos. I remember it being one of those movies of like, hey, kids, this is going to be a big movie. And it it was for one week. Yeah. It is amazing some of the movies that we get pop up here for one week at the top of the box office. Bloody hell, when we get to September, spoilers, everyone, September, there's five UK box office number ones. Yeah. Fucking five of them, mate. It's a busy month. On the 11th of February, we had the BBC One debut of the Irish set drama series, Bally Kiss Angel. For the new priest, a few words of advice. Brian Quigley is a good friend of the church, Father. You do well to remember that. I met your father. What does he do exactly? All kinds of everything. He's supplying us with a new confessional. He's the sole importing rights. So don't forget before you start cleaning up this town, it's important to my father people go on committing sin. I think I'm going to commit a mortal sin. Move in together. What? You do all the things that couples do. Just leave out one of them. I'm moving in with Ambrose. What? It's all right, Mr. Quigley. Father Clifford says there shouldn't be a problem. This is not what we pay you for. I don't work for you. When holy orders come face to face with the local order. Bally Kiss Angel. New drama for Sunday evenings on BBC One. Starting next Sunday at 7.30. I think I watched it for about five episodes. I got bored, but I think my mum watched it. Yeah, I think my mum was quite into this. My mum likes anything that is sort of like island set, really. Uh, And the day after that in February, I had to note this one down. Showgirls is released in the UK. What's your favourite scary movie? I am a uh, I am a showgirls apologist. I think it is a trashy as movie and I love it for it. It's it's a it is a Paul Verhoeven masterpiece. It is Paul Verhoeven, Paul Verhoevening the f*** out of Paul Verhoeven. 
Mm-hmm. And it is just like mad performances and then ends with a really awkward rape scene. And it's just like, where did this come from? The answer is the same as the beginning. Paul Verhoeven. On the 13th of February, Tupac Shakur releases the first ever rap double album, All Eyes on Me, one of the most influential albums in hip-hop history. It achieves platinum sales in just under four hours, reaches number one in the Billboard 200 charts. However, on the exact same day, Take That formally announce that they are splitting up. We do care very much about our fans, um, and we've, we've basically just decided there's been a, a number of factors that have made us change. But fans found little consolation in the apologies. We are the Taker! Please don't split! I'm really upset. It's like, they're such a good band. No one could replace them. They're just one of a kind. Take That has sold millions, made millions, and won countless awards. Songwriter Gary Barlow is favourite for solo success, but the band insists it's been a joint decision. It is a career move for us. We don't see it as the end. It is a career move for each of us. I'm very emotional at the moment, but I know that it's the best time finishing on top. We always said we'd finish on top. Gary Barlow will have a career. I'm sure Gary Barlow will have a career. What will happen to the others is, uh, is perhaps less certain. Um, but they've made a lot of money in the meantime. Perhaps they don't need to work again. The group say they'll set up counselling for the fans if they need it, but the tears may be short-lived. For now, it's the end for Take That, but we'll all still be around. Our mugs will be turning up on TVs and doing things for numbers of years to come, and we're not totally ruling off the end of Take That. Sarah Holden, GMTV News, Manchester. No, I do hope not. And yet, despite announcing that they're breaking up, this is not the last we will hear from them as a group, which is kind of weird. I, you know, at this period of time, I'm like 10, 11 years old. And I remember watching like Saturday, like Saturday shows, you know, live and kicking and things like that. And them talking about take that breaking up and doing those live phone-ins for people to, kid, girls to call in and cry that take that had split up. And they were doing like crisis lines for people like that, for like, you know, who were really genuinely affected by this band breaking up it, I, it's the first time i can remember that sort of thing happening in my lifetime good morning Hello. well you're not going to get them back and that's that considering the boys haven't actually been wiped out in a plane crash or incarcerated for life in some mad dictator's dungeon the wave of teen grief might seem maybe a tad over the top but uh, we will be talking to a serious psychiatrist who's glumly predicting that there might be some suicides by distraught take that fans so as child line the samaritans and lots of other helplines report a genuine flood of calls on this we've got advice for parents and teens just to kind of get you through the weekend. There are thousands of girls out there who feel their hearts have been really broken. It's hard to understand how seriously they take this if you're over 19, or take that if you're over 19, but there's no doubt about the broken hearts caused by Gary Barlow's final comment earlier this week. Um, how Deep Is Your Love is going to be our last single together and the greatest hit is going to be our last album. And from today, is no more. <laughs> The level of hysteria around them breaking up was almost Beatles-esque. Yeah. Like, like we, we are talking that kind of end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s when the Beatles were done. And same sort of reaction from the fan base. But the biggest difference in it being that it actually got airtime and, yeah, almost a support network. There was no way they were doing that at the end of the 60s for kids that were absolutely distraught by John, Paul, George and Ringo breaking up. On February 18th, the final episode, at least of this era, of the long-running satirical puppet show Spitting Image is broadcast on ITV. And unfortunately, it's not the very last time that Spitting Image will be back on our screens. 
On February 19th, Jarvis Cocker disrupts that performance of Michael Jackson's Brit Award performance of Earth Song, lifting his shirt and pointing his bottom in Jackson's direction before getting into a scuffle with security. Cocker later stated that his actions were, quote, a form of protest at the way Michael Jackson sees himself as some kind of Christ-like figure with the power of healing. The lead singer of the pop group Pulp, Jarvis Cocker, has strenuously denied allegations that he attacked three children performing with Michael Jackson at last night's Brit Award ceremony. Jackson said he was sickened by the whole incident when Cocker ran onto the stage during his live performance. It's the biggest night in British pop, with the vast Earl's Court in West London besieged by screaming fans as a succession of stretched limos deliver the stars. But indoors at the ceremony, there was trouble. The American superstar Michael Jackson was there to perform live on stage, only to find he and his dancers were sharing the limelight. She came from Greece, Jarvis Cocker, lead singer of British band Pulp, ran on stage. He danced and allegedly made V-signs at Michael Jackson before being bundled off by security staff. He was taken to a police station and released at three in the morning. Michael Jackson was performing a version of his hit Earth Song. Three of the children on stage with him were allegedly punched and knocked over. The organizers called the invasion dangerous and irresponsible. Fellow musician Brian Eno denied Jarvis Cocker had assaulted the children. He said he'd been protesting at the Hollywood-style showbiz of Michael Jackson's performance. I think he did it because the show was so awful. The, the whole sentiment of the show was so um, self-inflating, you know. It, it was such a booster for Michael Jackson. A statement from Michael Jackson said he was sickened, saddened, shocked, upset, cheated and angry, but immensely proud that the cast remained professional and the show went on. The Brit Awards themselves are on television tonight. There'll be plenty of stars, but viewers won't be seeing last night's bit of pulp friction. Nick Hyam, BBC News. I watched this Brit Awards. Oh, so did I. And I can absolutely see this as being a protest. However... I also think he was very drunk. Yeah, oh, what you can see that in him when he's getting up on stage. Like a proper, like, oh, I'm just going to go and do this and I don't care. Yeah, this is a good idea. This is a great idea. No possible consequences of this. And, uh, I mean, it did damage his career. In a way, it did, yeah. Like, I think, you know, the underground people that were into Pulp probably got more into Pulp off the back of it. But yeah, I think that his mainstream appeal, like, he was known for this. I think actually probably now, if people brought up the name Jarvis Cocker, They'll either bring up common people or they'll bring up this moment. On February 21st, 1996, we got the debut episode, and it's still on to this day, of Silent Witness. I'm not satisfied this death is accidental. A search for the truth. Do you understand what you're asking? That community was shattered by what happened to that baby. And now you want to dig it all up again? The need for evidence. There is no investigation. Exactly, you closed it down. I think Sarah was the subject of furious and brutal attacks. A fear for the consequences. Why didn't you say this at the trial? I thought I could make him better. So what am I supposed to do now? Your job, catch a killer. Amanda Burton in Silent Witness. New drama for BBC One. Starting tomorrow and continuing Thursday at 9.30. I've never watched Silent Witness. I'm not a Silent Witness person. Which is weird because I do like a good crime procedural, like as background noise. When I wrote this piece down, I was like, oh, I bet your ash is into a silent witness. 
No, amazingly not. A lot of other shows you could talk about where it'd be like, oh, yeah, but no, not this one. Very heavily parodied by a lot of people at that time as well. On the 23rd of February, Train Spotting is released in the UK, a film I absolutely adore. And yes, I was that teenager that had a Train Spotting poster on my wall. Amazingly, didn't make it to number one at the box no, office. No, it didn't. I could have sworn it would have done. I know, it was being held off by Jumanji that had been there for three weeks, I think, from February 18th. There's a game called Jumanji that has a life all its own. You have no idea what you are getting yourself into. An ancient game where the primitive spirit of the jungle can leap out and take hold of your world. I've seen things you can't even imagine. Things you can't even see. And those who have ever played the game know the dangers that lie within. You're afraid. It's okay to be afraid. I am not afraid of anything. Prove it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned there, Jumanji is our current UK box office number one. And what a film Jumanji is. Often forgotten that it's based on a book of the same name, a picture book, no less. Of course, mostly remembered for Robin Williams, really. And released originally in America at the tail end of 1995, didn't open over here for a couple of months, grossed well over $250 million worldwide, made on a budget of about $50, $60 million, and was in the top 10 highest grossing films of the year. Yeah, it was one of the biggest releases like of America in 1995, which is incredible, really, because it was released so late in 1995 as well. It got an animated spin-off and things like that. And actually, like, you know, you say, oh, yeah, it got a sequel in 2017. I think people often forget that it had a 2005 sequel as well in Zathura's, directed by Jon Favreau, which I actually think is still really good. I really like that film. And the only reason I don't kind of call it a sequel, it's weird, the book... Zathura directly references Jumanji, but the film does not, but is just kind of acknowledged in the poster, at least, from the minds behind. But it's basically same universe rather than being a direct sequel. It's space rather than jungle. Yeah, I think Zathura is a lot of fun beautifully stylish movie the thing that surprised me the most when i was kind of reading up on jumanji and the reaction to it is that because like i think for you know my generation it is kind of held up as one of the greats of the 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 90s and you know one of the best robin williams movies of the 1990s as well however when you look at the critical response to it it is quite mixed like roger ebert gave it one and a half stars out of four and said all it's doing is relying on its visual effects rather than actually focusing on any story Uh, which i think is quite unfair because i think there's a lot of heart to it a lot of really good action And I think it is a thrilling, thrilling movie. And amazingly for Williams, it's a really tight performance. Because I know Joe Johnston had reservations because he's like, this film has a lot of story to it. It's got a lot of script. Williams does go off the reservation quite a bit. And Williams actually essentially always made sure he got the take the director wanted of what was written and then had a couple of takes for Williams being Williams where he'd improvise and rattle through things, which is easily the most professional way you can go about it. And I think he was absolutely the right person for the role. I know there was a number of other people considered for the role, uh, including Tom Hanks, who will not be the last time we hear that as an also-ran name during this uh, run-through of Between Seasons. 
But Dan Aykroyd. Aykroyd's not the right man for this role. Oh, definitely not 95, 96 Dan Aykroyd. No, 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 no. Like, we are approaching Blues Brothers 2000 Dan Aykroyd. We we do not want that Danny here. No. I went, I went to the pictures to see Blues Brothers 2000. Me too. I was the only person. <laughs> yeah. I was the... There was only me and a member of cinema staff in the theatre and the member of cinema staff got up after five minutes and left. Yeah, it was only me and my friend that went to go see it and oof, it's a rough movie going experience that. Great musical performances. That is one thing I will say is the musical performances are top notch. There's some amazing modern blues and rhythm and blues musicians in there. Johnny Lang, Blues Traveller. It's just everything around it that holds it together that's a complete fucking mess. Yeah, it's a mess of a movie. Jumanji, on the other hand, is not. And actually seeing that Jumanji was number one here basically pointed me into the direction and seeing that Spice Girls was number one later on, that this is the year that I went on a Haven holiday campsite holiday this year in 1996 with my cousins. And it's legit one of the best holidays I've ever had in my life. Like I, I look back on that holiday, went with my cousins and my aunts and my uncle, and we just had like one of the best couple of weeks ever. It's proper, like you know, Spice Girls were everywhere. Me and my cousin were really into President of the United States of America's album, listening to that all of the time because Lump had been a, a hit a few years earlier. And we went to go and see Jumanji. Uh, obviously, this wasn't in February. Like it had been shown in some like some, some smaller cinema that had it like on a re-release type thing, right? Or like had it uh, you know on a, a post-release and going to the picture to see Jumanji then because I didn't see it when it first came out. And it's just legit one of my favorite holidays ever. I've got such vivid memories of it. Oh, sounds great. It was awesome. Uh, and lastly, for the month of February, although this is over in Japan, February twenty seventh, Pokemon Red and Green are released. Wow, really that early? Yeah, we won't get them for some time, but yeah, massive, massive in Japan uh, already here in 1996. Before we finish up with February, Ash, what have we got going on in the magazine? Over in the magazine, it's been reported that Nintendo are beginning to slash cartridge prices in Japan, partly to make way for the Nintendo Ultra 64. So there is a defined price gap between the costs of each generation's games. I find it interesting that their decision is to actually cut the price of the SNES games rather than just make the nintendo ultra 64 games more expensive because realistically the latter would be the one that i'd expect the most there's news that sega after the success of virtual fighter 2 and virtual cop are hard at work on two new projects including sonic fighters and virtual fighter 3 and virtual cop 2 i mean hey if you've got success in virtual fighter and virtual cop why not make virtual fighter 3 and virtual cop 2 like that, you know, those sorts of things, very easy flowcharts to follow. Amazing, though, still no new Sonic game. Come on, guys. Traditional Sonic game, I should add. Meanwhile, in the review section, Luke, we established firmly a few episodes ago that you are quite partial to the D. I, I, am, I do like the D. Yeah, there, there is no shame in liking the D. A lot of us like the D. And Games Master Magazine itself is also quite fond of the D, with Les reviewing it. My boy Les. And giving it 92 for graphics, 92 for sound, 84 for gameplay, 88 lifespan. Fair, it's not the biggest game in the world. 
for an overall score of 88. A DeLorean, if you will. That is a review that is far more fair than the TV show gave it. But I think, you know, we kind of theorized that the TV show had only played it for 20 minutes before sitting down to give their thoughts about it. Because, like, I'd imagine Les properly goes more into the mechanics of D. Although, maybe the love affair with Les is over because he also reviewed Worms for the Mega Drive. (gasps) 45 for graphics. Oh, bloody hell, mate. 50 for sounds. Right. 64 for gameplay. 63 for lifespan. Overall, 64%. Saying the Mega Drive version of Worms loses all the vindictiveness of the other versions and is basically a cut down version of the game. Not as good as it could have been. Okay, right. That, that's a bit fairer then. I, th- When you were reading up this course, I was wondering if it was like RDZ oh, hate it because it just doesn't look like it is quote unquote next gen Mega Drive, like end of Mega Drive and lifespan. Like this looks too much like an Amiga game, that sort of thing. But yeah, if it is like, I don't remember the Mega Drive version being a cut down sort of skimmed up version. I've actually got it upstairs. But yeah, I don't remember that at all. I actually don't think I ever played it on the Mega Drive until I was in my 20s. Apparently the voice samples are missing amongst other things, so oh, it's kind of right. it's lost it's lost a lot of its character by having that. The worms' voices, that's a huge part of the game. Yeah. Like incoming! Like that is that's worms. In fact, no matter how much the game style has changed, that's one of the consistents. Yeah, if those are missing, then I completely agree with Les there. Heading into March, and on March 1st, status quo. Take BBC Radio 1 to the High Court over a dispute in which the station refused to play their single Fun Fun Fun. The band loses the case, with Radio 1 arguing the status quo don't fit the demographic audience that the station is reaching out to. I was a Radio 1 listener at that at this point in time. I don't think I would have expected to hear a status quo song, in all fairness. No, I mean, there were a lot of songs that I remember popping up at Radio 1 at the time that I wouldn't have necessarily expected because they were kind of off kilter for what was the popular genres at the time. But yeah, I mean, status quo, they're one of those bands that's been around, will always be around in some way, even after all of the members are long gone. But I just can't see it being a fit for 95 to 96 to 97 Radio 1. It's Babylon Zoo. Our next number one is Oasis. The Prodigy is coming up. Gina G. Like, it's not status quo territory, BBC Radio 1 at this point. Oh, and you mentioned Oasis there because they are our number one on the 2nd of March. Don't look back in anger. Probably one of my absolute favourite Oasis songs. Also one of my uh, karaoke standards. I would say this is my favourite Oasis track. Like, Wonderwall has its place. But I think that Don't Look Back in Anger is a far, far superior track. It's weird because it's got all the same elements that Wonderwall does have as well. But I would argue that Wonderwall kind of tires more easily. What helps Don't Look Back in Anger, and actually like NME voted for this in, in 2012, it's like it's got that explosive chorus. Like they voted it number one in the list of 50 most explosive choruses, right? And I think that's what it is, particularly when you get to that end and you get that little drum fill of So Sally can... I get to a proper... Like you said, it's a karaoke's choice. It's a proper belt out the song. If you're with a few friends and you've had a few bevs, this is a fabulous song to sing out. Also, another great thing for a karaoke song, it's got a definitive end it doesn't fade (laughs) out it's a perfect perfect track oasis actually um what's the story morning glory is an album that i've been listening to with the kid and she really like seems to quite like it and it's it's an album that i really enjoy singing with her anywho is she mad for it (laughs) she is mad for it this is easter she keeps saying to me and i keep saying back to her no it's nebworth we'll have that later on as well (laughs) anyway 
on the 2nd of March, Command and Conquer is top of the video game charts. You're going to notice a pattern as well when we talk about the top of the video game charts, and it was kind of highlighted in the 1996 Buyer's Guide. If it is not a PC game, it's a PlayStation game. And if it's not a PlayStation game, it's a PC game. Command and Conquer is here as our PC game of choice. And holy heckins, what a game it is. I played the first Command and Conquer and I liked it. Red Alert is where it's at for me. Red Alert's the one, man. There is something special about Red Alert. And I think part of it is my experience of that was the first one I played multiplayer on a LAN at the internet cafe that I had a part-time gig at. And, oh, such good times. Just that series in general. Mm. I just love the Command & Conquer series. I'm very, very glad we got that remaster uh, last year or the year before. Still yet to sink as much time into it as I would like, but I think I could say that of almost every game in my collection right now. Pretty much. On March 4th, the Beatles' second reunion song is released as part of their first reunion since the band's breakup 26 years earlier. The song is a finished version of Real Love, a John Lennon demo from 1980. I really like the two Beatles reunion songs. I mean, I'm a Beatles fan anyway, but I like them as in they are fun songs. I don't think they are classic Beatles songs. I think they are classic Paul, George, Ringo and Jeff Lynne of ELO songs because you listen to them. They sound like they would be as much at home on an ELO or Travelling Wilburys album. It's yeah. kind of that Jeff Lynne has his fingerprints all over them. I do wonder what they would be like if they tried to do it today, because obviously the ability to clean audio is far beyond what they had available back then. I mean, nowadays you can take a mono recording of a Beatles song and you can, via very clever technical wizardry, separate it out into separate tracks for vocals, drums, bass, guitar. Sure, there'll be a little bit of bleed through because it's not 100% perfect. But the fact is you can do that and you could do it on your home computer. That's where we're at now. And so I just I just wonder, would it have been more Beatles-esque if they'd had that technology available, if they'd had to cover for less mistakes and flubs? Mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah there's, a, there's a real charm. I bought both of these as singles and I enjoyed the hell out of them. Still yeah. do. I mean, I, I really enjoy them as well as a Beatles fan. Like it is... It's just nice to see that they were still getting this, you know, the radio play essentially with the new singles and stuff. And I, I think they hold up. Also on March 4th, Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends returns to with a new series once again narrated by Michael Angelis. But instead of airing on free-to-air television, it's now on satellite on the Cartoon Network. Doesn't have Ringo in it? I'm not interested. Not into it, bud. I'm either Ringo or, if I'm in America, George Carlin. It's got to be that unlikely pairing. That's the only way it works for me. Putting it behind a paywall. How dare you? How dare you? That's what happens when you privatise British Rail. (laughs) (laughs) On March 9th, Actua Soccer tops the video game charts for the PlayStation on the same day that Take That, How Deep Is Your Love is top of the pops for the next three weeks. If you're thinking, well, that sounds like a Tabiji song. Could it is. It's also taken off of Take That's quote-unquote greatest hits album. And it's not the last time that they would actually record it because in 2018, they recorded it again with Barry Gibb. I am a unapologetic Bee Gees fan. I absolutely love the Bee Gees. I think they are an awesome, awesome act. Love me some Barry Gibb. And in all fairness, I don't think this is that terrible of a cover. Actually, then they do a really good job of it. And that re-release that they did of it was actually, it's it's really nice. It's not a bad cover. It is, like most covers, an unnecessary one. That's it. They don't change anything. 
it is literally just a copy and paste. It's also the first single that they released as a quartet after Robbie left as well. And as you mentioned earlier, they'd already split up by this point. Crazy stuff. On March 10th, When Saturday Comes is our new box office number one. Yeah, Sean Bean in a film where he doesn't die. But he does play football. He does play football with a score composed by Anne Dudley and a soundtrack including contributions from Spandau Ballet's Tony Hadley and Def Leppard's Joe Elliott. Because they're from the area. Apparently, Joe Elliott actually had a part in the film as the brother of Sean Bean's character, but the part was cut from the final film. I remember the movie. I'm pretty sure I studied this, or at least I watched part of it when I did media studies at school in my A-levels, because we did a module on like British movies. We did the full Monty, sort of like our case study. And like the our teacher there was making that point. There's like, yeah, this is a British movie, but how much did the British movie industry make off of this movie? Absolutely nothing, because it's an American movie. This is a 20th century Fox movie. Like The British injury makes nothing out of this. And he was making kind of the same point with uh, When Saturday Comes. But we, I'm pretty sure, I don't think we watched the full thing, but we definitely watched bits of this for, for like the module. A sequel has been written, although as yet remains unmade, probably because, as it stands, they've been unable to explain to Sean Bean what a sequel is. <laughs> uh, on the 14th of March, Channel 4 is forced to apologise to viewers after an ident showing the Big Breakfast presenter Mark Little firing a gun at the camera on screen the day after the Dunblane School Massacre. Oh, <laughs> It was probably in poor taste anyway, but also bad, bad timing. I've no idea if it was an actual gun gun or if it was one with a little flag that came out said bang. Either way, read the room. Yeah, read the room, guys. Although I will say, what, you said the day after? The day after, yeah. Chances are it was already locked, loaded, recorded and, you know, in the play pile. And so it wasn't done maliciously or with lack of thought. It was just a case of it had been cleared for broadcast before uh, Dunblane happened. But probably like still, three days previous. Like it would have just been one of those things like, and it it was probably not done maliciously or done to create controversy. Just an error was made. On the 16th of March, Cable Channel Live TV stages a live reconstruction of the Frank Bruno Mike Tyson fight using lookalike boxes as a way of hitting back at pay-per-view television on which the actual fight is being shown. It's a strange flex, but I'll go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Good on you. Uh, However, on the 17th, we have a new box office number one and it's Oliver Stone's quote-unquote epic and very accurate biopic, Bucky O'Hare is Nixon. His roots were humble. I grew up here on a little lemon ranch. It's the poorest lemon ranch in California, I can assure you. Richard, come with me, Woody. My dad sold it before they found oil on it. His ambitions, huge. Then it is time for new leadership for the United States of America. 
triumphant in victory. <laughs> I always underestimated Nixon's heat. I was underestimating him. Bitter in defeat. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. He changed the world. In one stroke, the balance of power has shifted to our favor. Lost a nation. These kids are useless. Go on, get him! And paid the price of power. Others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. Yeah, it was uh, Stone's second of his trilogy on American presidents. It was made, what, four or five years after JFK? And then 13 years later, he followed it with W about George W. Bush. It's a movie that caused quite a bit of controversy because of its portrayal of Nixon. Like, I think some people were very angry that they portrayed him as an alcoholic and things like that. And there were people who were really, really angry at this movie, um, not the least of which the Nixon family. But even like Walt Disney's daughter, Diane Disney Miller, wrote a letter to Nixon's daughter saying that Stone had, quote, committed a grave disservice to your family, to the presidency, and to American history. Amazingly, with the critics, it was mostly positive. Like Hopkins' performance received, you know, special note, got nominated for multiple Academy Awards, but it tanked either because people didn't care about Nixon or because they're morally outraged by it. I suspect it was more the former, but it grossed $13 million against a near $50 million budget. One of those movies where, like, I'm amazed it got a UK number one box office position with as of how poorly it did stateside, but maybe that's because, like, over here, we probably saw it more of a curio. And an Oliver Stone biopic type thing. Also, mate, some of the films we've had at number one during our tenure here on Under Consultation. Remember how we started. Yeah, I mean, well, we keep going back to Hellraiser 3 was a box office number one for us. What was the Nightmare on Elm Street? Was it Freddy's we Dead? Had, we had Freddy's Dead. Yeah, it was yeah. Freddy's Dead that followed Bogus Journey. Delightful stuff. Uh, on the 18th of March, the Sex Pistols announced that they will be reuniting for a 20th anniversary tour. I'm sure they're just as anarchic now as they were then. They're doing it to be counterculture. They're doing it to fight against the system. They're also doing it for a fuck ton of money. And speaking of anarchic, on the 22nd of March, Black Grape perform a cover of Pretty Vacant by the Sex Pistols on TFI Friday on Channel 4. However, during the performance, Sean Ryder uses several F-bombs and the incident results in Ryder being banned from live broadcasting and TFI Friday being recorded instead of being broadcast live. upside down but that's the least of my worries at the moment <laughs> very sorry for Sean's bad language again on this show he's still at it outside now so we're sorry we're sorry we're sorry we're sorry we're sorry we're very 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 sorry <laughs> sorry this is less than what two months being on the air and already the show's in trouble and it's all thanks to one Sean Ryder I bet you channel four were just like oh Chris Evans he was good with the big breakfast. He was a bit cheeky. He was a bit naughty. That don't forget your toothbrush. That was a bit cheeky, a bit naughty. This will be fine. Oh, God. A TFI Friday courted controversy throughout its entire run 
A lot of it never made it to air because of the pre-tape thing that came into place. But even then, they they got letters. They still got letters. They didn't need Sean Ryder to achieve that. When they did TFI Friday, I think it was actually called After Dark, but it was like a later broadcast type thing. They made reference to the fact that Sean Ryder was not allowed to be on the show because it was a live broadcast. But they did have Sean Ryder appear and they did this whole thing about speaking to him on a pre-tape. And so like Chris Evans is there speaking to him, you know, it's dark outside and he's speaking to him. He's like, Sean, how can you prove that this is a pre-tape recording and not a live broadcast? And Sean Ryder opens up a door and this bright sunshine fills in and he goes, it's fucking daylight outside. Amazing. <laughs> on the 23rd of March, Civilization 2 tops the video game charts and would be back again on 20th of April. Meanwhile, on March 24th, a movie we've talked about many, many times before, Toy Story rocks the box office for just two weeks. For anyone who's ever wondered what toys do when people aren't around. Hey everybody, it's showtime! Walt Disney Pictures invites you into a world where toys come to life. Wow, cool! Let's go tomorrow, guys! Red alert! Andy is coming upstairs! Whoa! Andy's coming, everybody! Back to your places! Hurry! Did you see my ear? Out of my way! Woody, the veteran. Draw! Oh, got me again! Buzz, the rookie. Have you been replaced? No one's getting replaced. Excuse me. Buzz, here to the rescue! Oh, okay, who else? You're mocking me, aren't you? <laughs> Ow! What do you say I get someone else to watch the sheep tonight? <laughs> Yeah. I'm shocked it wasn't longer. Same here, dude. Like, you know, I've told the story about me and my, my brother taking me to go and see this. In preparation for this, I rewatched Toy Story, watched it with my kids, still think it brilliantly holds up. It's a fantastic movie. And off the back of it, I watched two, three, and four. And I've actually watched a bunch of the shorts as well. I can highly recommend Small Fry if you've never seen it it's on Disney Plus. It's a 10 minute Toy Story short about a McDonald's happy meal buzz light year replacing the real buzz light year amazing i will have to check that out oh it's so good because they have the scene of buzz the you know the tim allen buzz light year finding a support group of left behind mcdonald's happy meal style toys i would definitely check that out on march 28th phil collins announces that he's leaving genesis to focus on his solo career he didn't have a bad solo career obviously what's happened to him now and where he's at with his health very very sad i know a number of people that went to see genesis on that last tour and it was still you know a good show but oof. I've, I've seen video of it on youtube and it is it's tough to watch you also mentioned there that toy story was uh, box office number one for two weeks and i'm as surprised as you are because on march 29th lawnmower man 2 beyond cyberspace was released and it somehow did not unseat toy story I'm shocked. Maybe it's because they couldn't decide what it was called. Was it Beyond Cyberspace? Was it Job's War? Who knows? You'd have really thought that Games Master push for it would have rocketed it towards the number one position, but alas, Toy Story seemed to seem to get the stranglehold there. The box office just isn't ready for Matt Frewer to be number one. Uh, and on March 30th, to round things off here, Alien Trilogy topped the console charts, and Prodigy's Firestarter is top of the fucking pops. I... Love this song. I love Fat the Land, which comes out uh, the following year. This is Prodigy's first number one single after 10 attempts, and it is just an incredible song. My wife, for some reason, thought it was a novelty track. Really? Yeah, she was just like, it's, it's a like a novelty song. And I had to 
reminder, I was like, no, 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 this is an actual song. They're an actual band. This was a, a genuine piece of music. And I think it is absolutely awesome for it as well. I was massive into the prodigy around this time. Leaving school, as I was finishing up year six, going into year seven for secondary school, uh, we got to do like a sort of, we had a fancy dress costume thing on one of the last days and stuff. I went as Keith Flint. I had my hair all spiked up. I had it dyed green. And I was, um, but I didn't know his name was Keith Flint. When they asked me, who am I? I said, I'm the prodigy. You're all of them. You're embodying the entire spirit of the prodigy. The entire group. At least I didn't say, I'm the fire starter guy. I just said, no, I know, I'm the prodigy. Because I just thought he was, that was that's what they were. You could have actually just said, I'm the fire starter, twisted fire starter. That would have worked. <laughs> it would have worked, yeah. It's one of my favourite songs, not just of this era, but of the decade. And a, a song that I go back to quite regularly because I love Fat the Land, love music for the Jilted Generation. I've just got so much love for, for Prodigy. Uh, but Ash, before we finish up the month of March, what have we got going on in the magazine? Well, the lead news article in the March issue of Games Master is Ultra Smokescreen because according to industry sources, Nintendo are only hanging on to the April launch date to heighten expectation and keep Sony and Sega guessing. Japanese commentators point to the fact that Nintendo have not placed the huge orders for controllers that would be required for a spring launch there. Meanwhile, in the US, skeptical developers reckon that it's in Ninty's interest to make people think there'll be an early launch so that gamers won't get fed up and buy a PlayStation or Saturn instead. Many also can't believe that Nintendo would be happy with having so little software available at launch, probably just Mario 64 and Kirby 64. Well, half right. Mm -hmm. The clever money suggests that Nintendo will wait until September or later for Japan and the US to eclipse the big Christmas that Sony and Sega have got planned. That would allow them to come into the market with a much better range of software, including some titles like Zelda and Shadows of the Empire that could blow the PlayStation and Saturn lineups away. Let's hope that rumours about 1997 for the UK are untrue. Wow, wow. I mean, even when it launches, particularly in the UK, that launch lineup, it's it's skimpy. You know, the names that they're dropping there are the ones that we saw at the in the, that Japan showcase that we had back in November, but we're not really getting a lot of those titles. Like, you know, Ocarina of Time is not one of the titles that we're getting at launch. When I got the Nintendo 64 close to UK launch, the only title I remember getting with it was Shadows of the Empire because you couldn't get a copy of Mario 64 for love nor bloody money. Should have come boxed with it. I reckon that would have turned some tides if they'd gone packing and they didn't. I cannot believe they didn't learn. You'd have thought the success of Sonic and actually boxing Mario All-Stars or Mario World in with the SNES, you'd have learned that it's a real good way to shift units. I think you even make the argument for the PlayStation boxing in that demo disc. Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, the PlayStation boxing a demo disc, sure, it's a demo disc, but you had something to play. Yeah, out the box, absolutely. But also, it's not all doom. Oh, wait, no, it is all doom and gloom. Atari are on the ropes, Luke. Oh, no, you're kidding me. But things looked like they were going to be so promising for 1996. I know. And after denying that they were abandoning the Jaguar a month ago, a big shakeup at Atari US suggests its future is still uncertain. Atari US claimed the cancellation of most of their in-house projects won't affect the Jaguar, as a lot of products are developed <laughs> elsewhere. It yeah. also pointed out that rumours of Jeff Minter, creator of Tempest 2000 and Defender 2000, leaving Atari are misleading as he has always been an outside contractor they simply haven't contracted him to do any new projects you're not helping Atari you're not helping however hard they try to dispel it an atmosphere of doom and gloom is never far away from Atari the move into PC software does seem to suggest a new direction for the company that may not include the console market the cancellations could just be Atari's disgust at the quality of some internally developed titles 
but it amounts to a vote of no confidence in their own format. Poor, poor Atari. Bad, bad 1990s for, for Atari. Following on from, you know, the bad 1980s, I suppose. And lastly, Gold Star have dropped the 3DO. Oh, man. And after that showed such promise for 1996 as well. I mean, it had slightly more promise than Atari's Jaguar. <laughs> the M2 and that. Hey, at least one of these issues of Games Master magazine had an M2 preview in it. Oh, nice. Yeah, it, it was a game that never appeared. <laughs> generation the culture of 66 versus 96 starting this sunday in the observer that woody is really friendly unless he hears a high-pitched noise tatlies take the rough with the smooth switch to a network where everyone gets inclusive minutes call 0800 80 10 80 I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. These prices are very low, Mr. Jackson. Yes. You'd expect to pay this for brands you've never even heard of. What exactly are you getting at, Matthew? Well, couldn't we charge a bit more for them, then? We could. Don't tell me. But we won't. Quick save. Cutting the cost of shopping. The offer DFS could never make before is extended until this Sunday, 5pm. You can choose anything. And it's free for the first 18 months. Choose anything, take four years free credit. And pay nothing for the first 18 months. But that's not all. There's 40% of all these sofas, settees and chairs. And 40% off these, like this leather sofa, just 498. There's 40% off all special Easter time offers. But, but it, it must, must end, end Sunday. 5 p.m. Uh, 
uh, heading into the month of April and on the second of the month, the popular comic strip character from the Beano, Dennis the Menace, is brought to life with a new animated series for BBC One as part of the CBBC lineup. Good crikey, do I remember the hype about this show and the various news items that were done about this. I remember the hype. I don't think I watched it. I would have done because I was a Beano reader and I still was a Beano reader at this point as well. But, I, you know, still getting the annuals every single Christmas. So I would have been excited for this. Can't remember the show that much. Just remember that it was on and I would have watched it. I was a Beano reader, but not at this point. I, I was a bit older, Luke, you know, I was, I was, I was say, moving yeah. on to my 2000 AD. I'd moved on to my kind of my big boy magazines, Luke. That's my it, big yeah. Boy magazines. I, th- I think me being like 10 years old at this point, I'm still like the prime age for the, this sort of Beano stuff. On the 3rd of April, MC Hammer files for bankruptcy because you can't rest on all of your baggy pants laurels. Uh, but on April 4th, and I've got this one in just for you, the Grateful Dead's Bob Weir and Jerry Garcia's widow Deborah scatter part of Garcia's ashes in the Ganges River in India. Oh, wow. Um, I'm not going to get into it here because literally it would only be of interest to me. I could almost see your eyes glazing over before <laughs> I start. I write these things down for you. The, the the story of the scattering of Jerry Garcia's ashes is fairly horrific. Oh, yeah? Oh, God. It involves various family members not being allowed on. and it, it, it's, it got proper messy. Mm. Like band members were odds, family members are odds, various wives and ex-wives were odds. It was just, it was unpleasant. In a slightly different note, on the 7th, Billy Madison is our UK box office number one. John Tan Lotion is good for me. He was born into privilege. Oh, really, fool? Really? And stood to inherit a fortune. But for 27-year-old Billy Madison, there's just one problem. How could I hand over my company to someone who couldn't even get through school? That's nice. Billy is not an idiot. Give me one more chance. I'll prove I can take over. First grade through 12th grade, all over again. And then I get to take over Madison Hotels. You're on. This is a film that came out in America sometime earlier in 1995. We didn't get it until April. And yet this is one of two Adam Sandler movies that we get at the top of the box office over the next few months. Yeah. I've never liked Adam Sandler. I've just never found him particularly funny or entertaining. So I've never seen Billy Madison. I've also never seen the other film that we're going to talk about in a bit. The, that one is a much better movie uh, for, for my money. Um, Billy Madison is the side of Adam Sandler I don't like, which is that voice. Peter Rayner, I think, kind of sums it up for me uh, in his review of it, where he said Sandler has a habit of thinking he is funnier than we are. I, I am at times a Sandler apologist. Uh, this is not one I can defend, though. I, I, I'm, people think of it as one of his better movies, but it's, it's not for me. On the 13th of April, Channel 4 airs the first 10 editions of The Gabby Roslin Show. Blonde, your mission this week. We want you to meet with the following people. Choose a discreet spot. Nothing too public. Get to know them. Find out what makes them tick. Then take appropriate action. The Gabby Roslin Show. Tonight at 9 on Channel 4. A chat show presented by Gabby Roslin, which aims to recapture the atmosphere of the 1970s series such as Parkinson. Ratings quickly fall from 3 million to less than 1 million, and it's panned by viewers and critics alike. Poor Gabby Roslin, she left the big breakfast for this. It, it's another misunderstanding. 
one of the things that made Parkinson so popular was Parkinson. It, it was as much about the host as it was the guests. Billy Conley, as a perfect example, has been on hundreds of chat shows, but his best appearances were always with Michael Parkinson because of the chemistry there. And if you look at so many classic interview clips with various other celebrities of that era, they could have appeared with Wogan, they could have appeared with various other people, but it was the Parkinson clips that are the ones. He just had a way of kind of relating to people and grounding them and getting stuff out of them that other hosts wouldn't get. Uh, well, we won't talk about the box office number one that was on the 14th, which was Mighty Aphrodite, because... Woody Allen. It, it's a Woody Allen movie. Moving on. Moving on. Um, speaking of moving on, the remaining part of Jerry Garcia's ashes was scattered near the Golden Gate Bridge the following day. And after that, on the 16th of April, Rage Against the Machine release Evil Empire, which is an album that is not as good as the first one, but I still really like it. Bulls on Parade is a banging tune. And we have just leapt in two sentences from The Grateful Dead to Rage Against the Machine, which is not actually as weird as it might sound. Both are very counterculture, just different ends of the spectrum. I thought I'd include this story because we've had this as like an ongoing thing throughout the entire run of Under Consultation. But on the 18th, the ITC confirms the awarding of the Channel 5 license to Channel 5 Broadcasting Limited, setting out that it's broadcasting remit. 50% of programming must be original, while there are quotas for the amount of public service programming that must be aired. Channel 5, whatever happened to them? I know, right? Like, they have quite the launch. Is it next year it launches? I think it's 1997, isn't it? The Spice Girls open it. And, and most people in the country couldn't receive it because <laughs> no. yeah, it, it was a proper botched launch. Channel 5, still out there today. I never watch Channel 5, but I do watch 5 USA. That's, <laughs> that's it, really. Channel 5 was a station that I actually could get in my bedroom. I, I, and I could get a pretty good picture on it as well, which was always great on those Friday nights. Oh, for Lex and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, the smutty movies on a Friday night. The ups, the ups and downs of a handyman. The ups and downs of a handyman, by the way, is a theme tune that I can still sing to you to this day. The ups and downs of a handyman, living my life to the best I can, up and down all over the town, I can make them smile, I can make them frown. Pretty sure it goes along those lines. The ups and downs of a handyman, living my life the best I can, up and down all over town, I can make you smile, I can make you frown. There is talent that I never knew you had. <laughs> Well, speaking of talent, on the 20th of April, Mark Morrison's Return of the Mac is top of the pops for two weeks. I haven't really got much to add on that one, although it was a big song at the time. However, I've got much more to say about our box office number one, Ooh. 12 Monkeys. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. No license, no prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was just into the eyeballs. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill, all I know you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. 
The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys? He's been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't become addicted to that dying world? No, sir. He needs help. Oh, man, this one goes for a bit as well. It's April 21st through to the week beginning May 12th. So that's what, three weeks? Yeah, we get it for weeks? quite a little while. And it's a it's a big old release. It's actually it's one, two, three, four. It's four weeks that we get this. And, I, and I'm a huge 12 Monkeys fan. I didn't see it until uh, I was doing my media studies, I think. So it's a few years after this for, for, my, for GCSEs. And I had to write a paper on time travel and time travel and how it's used in movies. And 12 Monkeys was one of the films that I was using as like a case study. And I was blown away by its its imagination and its creativity. And it's a stonker of a movie. Also, a box office number one for Terry Gilliam. Yeah, I know. Well done him. Yeah. uh, Bruce Willis, of course, in it. Brad Pitt in it. Christopher Plummer. David Morse. And... It's it's a great film. It's a it's a very very good film made on quite a modest budget of just under thirty million. Return on that was over one hundred and seventy million, which it was is nothing nothing to be sniffed at. It was and still remains a bloody great movie. I've not seen the TV series that they did. No, it's one of um two box office number ones we're going to cover that had spin off TV series. I have watched the TV series of the other one and really enjoyed it, but we'll get to that a bit later. On the 27th of April, Granada confirms that O.J. Simpson has been booked to appear on the first edition of Richard Madeley and Judy Finnegan's new series, Tonight with Richard and Judy, scheduled to air on the 13th of May. Our first guest is the most controversial person that we've ever interviewed charged with two terrible murders, his trial became the most watched courtroom drama in television history. Not so long ago, he was an American icon, a sports, TV and movie star, a multi-millionaire, the ghetto kid made good. Then the American dream became a nightmare. His ex-wife and her friend were dead, and he was the prime suspect. An American court cleared him, but many were not convinced. The former football star will be paid a nominal fee of one pound for his first interview since being cleared of murder in 1995, though Granada will also pay for his travel expenses. The interview proves to be controversial, with both Madeley and Finnegan attracting media criticism for what was deemed to be their candy floss questioning of Simpson. Ultimately, the show aired for just one series. Yeah, the uh, covering travel expenses only is a nice way of basically funneling money, because those travel expenses will also include hotels, room service, Mm-hmm. Uh, various transports, probably even some entertainments, you know, as a stipend. It's a holiday. Yeah, basically a paid holiday. And lastly, to round us off here in our um, news, we will cover this bit more probably in the magazines, but on the 27th, Theme Park tops the video game charts. Bloody love me some Theme Park. Ash, what is going on in our magazines, though? Well, last month we had news about Nintendo slashing prices in Japan. But now it has come to the UK as Nintendo have announced some major new prices for the whole range of Super Nintendo and Game Boy games. As much as £30 has been wiped off the price of some titles in an attempt to drive people back into the shops. Star of the new bestsellers range is Killer Instinct, which has been reduced from £59.99 to £29.99. Oh, that's a, that's a lovely little bargain, that. 30 quid for Killer Instinct. Unfortunately, Yoshi's Island and Donkey Kong Country 2 are both up at around £54.99, but some oldies but goldies are coming back in style and at a price which should make them irresistible to anyone. Super Metroid, only £15. Oh. And Uni Rally. Remember Uni Rally? I remember it, a absolutely. Favorite, favorite yeah. of the podcast. That's going to be going for £24.99. 
and I've got a full list here. So we've got the SNES bestsellers, which is Killer Instinct, as mentioned, $29.99, and then Yoshi's Island and Donkey Kong Country 2 for $54.99 each. But the value greats, Super Metroid at $14.99, Kid Clown at $14.99. Nice to see that back, yeah. Games Master yeah. Challenge with Natalie Imbruglia. Super Punch-Out, $19.99. Illusion of Time, $19.99. Stunt Race FX, $24.99. Univally at $24.99. And, ooh, a daddy of a cartridge, Mario All-Stars and Mario World Combo Kart for $34.99. Even at 35 quid, that's an absolute bargain. Six games there. There's a whole bunch of Game Boy and Game Bundles, uh, ranging from $49.99 for a red Game Boy and Killer Instinct, up through to $59.99 for a grey Game Boy and Galaga Galaxian. That's that's weird. Yeah, like what the a weird Game Boy. title. Honestly, of the two, I would probably pick Galaga and Galaxian to play on the Game Boy over Killer Instinct. So maybe, maybe they're smarter than we're giving them credit for. Maybe. I think I was just more thinking of like, well, Killer Instinct still feels like a new game. The Game Boy also has some double value packs, all for $29.99 each. You've got the double pack of Wario Blast and Wario Land, Super Mario Land and Donkey Kong, Super Mario Land and Wario Land, and Super Mario Land and Space Invaders. Luke, they've got a lot of Super Mario Land to shift there. I'm going to assume as well that Super Mario Land 2. I mean, maybe it isn't. Uh, but hey, getting Super Mario Land and Donkey Kong, that's a brilliant... And again, I'm going to assume it's Donkey Kong 94 as opposed to Donkey Kong Land. It's one of my favourite Game Boy games, so that is a good bundle to get your hands on. And in the value greats from $9.99 to $12.99 apiece, we've got baseball, Tomp Racking Tennis, Soccer, Golf, Game Boy Gallery, Alleyway, Mario and Yoshi, and the best $9.99 you could probably spend on a Game Boy game at that time, Dr. Mario. Oh, that's a lovely tenor to spend. And to round out that list, we've also got the Game Boy Arcade Classics. Most of these are also available as packing games on those £60 bundles. We've got Galaga Galaxian, Defender Joust, Asteroids Missile Command, and Centipede Millipede. They're all $17.99 each. God, you know what? There are some really, really nice bundles there. Some really, really good prices. I'm actually a gog at Super Metroid for 15 quid. I know it's a fairly old game at this point, but it's not going to feel that old in 1996 because it still holds up now in, in 2022. So that's a really, really, that's a bargain at 15 quid. And actually, like, you know, you mentioned there that your Killer Instincts dropped down by 20, 30 quid or whatever it is. And yeah, Donkey Kong Country 2 or Yoshi's Islanders, but give it a couple of months because... Killer Instinct only came out in November. So give it a few months and they'll probably drop down to a similar price. But for Nintendo, it's not all good news. As in news that will come back to haunt us and I know is something that our compatriot over at the N64 Life podcast has talked about. Squaresoft, makers of the best SNES RPGs, have announced that they are ditching the SNES after their next batch of releases. However, they will be concentrating on PlayStation from now on. Their first PlayStation game, Final Fantasy VII, will be out in Japan by Christmas. Even more of a shock, though, is the news that Square are ditching any support for the Nintendo 64. They have even gone so far as to send all their development kits back to Nintendo. I had a proper, like, obviously you can't see this because this is an audio medium, but I literally just, like, put my hands behind my head and leant backwards in, like, a, oof, how different the world could have been had we got the N64 version of Final Fantasy VII how different the landscape might have looked. I don't think it would look massively different, but I'd be so curious to know what, how people feel about the game with hindsight. Because, you know, there are pictures out there of what the game would have looked like on the N64. They were working on it. So, yeah, it is a... Uh, man, God, I feel bad for the N64 in their 
uh, Squaresoft backing the PlayStation horse, which for them was completely the right horse to back. For better or for worse, it puts Squaresoft where they are today. Absolutely it did. Final Fantasy VII is a legit game changer, a landscape changer for Squaresoft. Right, well, let's get into May here. And actually, on the 2nd of May, I can't believe this is in 1996, because I think you could probably point to this as a groundbreaking piece of television. On the 2nd of May, where the debut of BBC One's Airport, a fly-on-the-wall documentary series about Heathrow Airports. I cannot believe this was this long ago. Absolutely, I cannot believe this is 1996. Was this one of the first of its kind? I've got to believe it is. I feel like this has to be one of the first of its kind. And that's kind of what I mean. Like this feels like a bit of groundbreaking television because this this sets off a period of time where everyone, every Tom, Dick, and Harry are trying to make shows like Airports, trying to find those characters that work in these sorts of places and just tell you what it's like being their lives. I mean, there's a couple that we kind of sometimes have on in the background here. There's one about some paramedics, which is kind of like first responders, which is pretty you know interesting. Uh, one that is definitely background background viewing and something that we have a lot here is the Yorkshire Vet. Oh, nice. It's going to the setting of all creatures great and small where the actual James Herriot kind of was from and lived. And it's following some vets around there. So you get like obviously your standard mixture of cats and dogs that have got a sprained leg, but also you have sheep that aren't giving birth properly. A llama that had a fractured jaw, that was one. But it is, it's fascinating stuff because... Unless you are an animal owner, or in the case of out in Yorkshire, a farmer, you're probably not going to know a lot about this. I know more about a sheep's prolapsed vagina than I ever <laughs> needed to know, Luke. Perhaps that helps you get into May 3rd's release of Hackers. A cinematic prolapsed vagina? <laughs> Some might think of it as such. Because you're either in two camps. You either think that Hackers is a really, really good film, or it's an absolute piece of crap. I think it's an absolute piece of crap, but I enjoy it for being a piece of crap. That's that's where I fall onto it as well. I'm a cinematic trash panda. We've established it well before now. I will watch the worst movies. My friend legit loved Hackers. It was his favourite movie. When we used to go and rent videos then at his local video shop, he was always wanting to rent Hackers. On May 4th, we have a new single at the top of the pops. It's George Michael's Fast Love, our second appearance of George in this episode. It's at the top of the UK charts for a good few weeks. It sold over 450,000 copies and it peaked at number eight on the Billboard Hot 100, giving George Michael his 15th top 10 hit and his final single to reach that top 100 in America. And that to me is more impressive than it being number one in the UK because the music market in America is way more diverse like there's a lot more genres vying for that top 100 spot the thing that jumps out to me when i was looking at the wikipedia page for this is that it was released here by virgin records but in the u.s it's released by dreamworks which is david geffen steven spielberg and disney defector jeffrey katzenberg what a time for disney this period of time the proper war between katzenberg and michael eisner and him splitting off, working with Spielberg and Geffen, and, you know, Ants is just around the corner that was basically made to try and fuck with Bugs Life by Pixar, and then Trek, which is a movie that is just designed to be like, fuck Disney, with a villain that is based purely on Michael Eisner. And meanwhile, at the Disney camp, you had Disney's daughter kind of defending richard nixon a little bit yeah and actually like i mean we'll get to it uh, i maybe it's in this episode maybe it'll be at a different time but we don't have a disney box office number one this year because their release this year does not top the charts 
But anyway, carrying on, on May 8th in Los Angeles, a judge rules against Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson Lee in their attempt to keep Penthouse from publishing still photos taken from an X-rated home movie that was stolen from their home. Watch the story of that now on Disney+. Plus, Or wait until the Netflix documentary that's actually got Pamela Anderson's approval. Watch both or don't watch either. It's your life, really. It is, yeah. Like, I've I've seen some of Pam and Tommy, and I actually quite enjoyed it, but there was that part of me that's just like, oh, this is a movie about something that was stolen from Pamela Anderson, and now this is being made without her consent. I watched it mainly for the animatronic penis. <laughs> that's exactly it. And if you didn't know that this miniseries has an animatronic penis, guess what? It has an animatronic penis. I, I bet you now there will just be this kind of flurry of people going to Disney Plus and just kind of skimming through it until they find it and going, oh, there it is. I was going to say, just to highlight again, that is an animatronic talking penis on Disney Plus. Something, something Michael Eisner joke? <laughs> I was going to say, if you if you finish watching Mickey Mouse and Friends with your kids, switch it over and watch Pam and Tommy for some talking dicks. Moving on. Moving on. Here in the UK on the 13th, after an eight-year absence, the game show Call My Bluff returns to BBC One, presented by former Games Master contestant Bob Holness. Call My Bluff, a programme for the returning viewer, chaired by the ever-young wizard of the word, Bob Holness. Yes, our referee is that defender of fair play and still a very handsome fellow, if he doesn't mind me saying so. And if you believe that, you should watch Call My Bluff, 5 past 12 on BBC One. Love a bit of Bob. Uh, on the 18th, Duke Nukem was top of the video game chart, and the day after that, Money Train is the UK box office number one. Christmas in New York, a time for giving, a time for peace. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's rumble. But beneath the streets... Come on, Grandma! Stay for two transit cops. You know, this job can be hazardous to your health. It's no holiday. I say you guys are the best. Well, modesty prevents me from... Well, no, it doesn't. I, we are the best. They're not just partners. They're family. This is your brother? I see the resemblance. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. I mean, it does take a special kind of person to do this job. You're not going to hit it. Why not? Because I'm going to hit it. Someone with dedication. Perseverance. Courage. Cojones. I, I am getting excited. A.K.A. White men can't jump as popular. Can we put Snipes and Harrelson in another movie together? Hey, it was a payday for them. If nothing else, they got $5.5 million apiece to star in Money Train. And yeah, it directly came off the back of them starring together in White Men Can't Jump. It's not a bad film. It's okay. It's just a film. On the 20th of May, John Pertwee passes away aged 76. The actor John Pertwee, who played the Time Lord Doctor Who for four years and Wurzel Gummidge for ten, died in Holiday in America today at the age of 76. He had a heart attack in his sleep. ITN's Colin Baker recalls a man who was a favourite with generations of children. John Pertwee was the astronomical aristocrat. He was the Time Lord. His unique talents made him a star long before he entered the TARDIS, but as the third Doctor Who, he became the most popular. And after four years of time travelling, he'd established himself as something of a cult figure. 
It's a very complicated thing, time, Joe. Once you've begun tampering with it, the oddest things start happening. John Pertwee's acclaimed version of Doctor Who was a role in stark contrast to the comedy for which he'd been known. In reality, he was dismissive of Daleks. He said they were put together with a sink plunger, an egg whisk and tennis balls and said they were just ridiculous. Daleks! Going to conventions won't be the same without him there. They won't be the same for the Doctor Who fans who he has been... The, who, they have been devoted to him and he's devoted himself to them in return. He'll be very sadly missed. He was a great man. I mean, I can definitely say that I was in the company of a great man and he made me laugh so much. From the dandy doctor to old Turniphead, playing Wurzel Gummidge gave Pertwee yet another opportunity to display his mastery of mimicry and dialect, delighting millions of children. And turning out for a children's party was never a problem for him. I'd rather dance with Aunt Sally. He quietly admitted he rather enjoyed being a cult figure. Colin Baker, News at 10. Ah, uh, this is a weird month because, as I'm sure you've got in your notes, there was another Doctor Who note for this month, the premiere across multiple countries of the Doctor Who 1996 TV movie co-production between 20th Century Fox and the BBC. It debuted in the 12th of May in Canada. Two days later, it was on the Fox network. And then May 27th, it appeared over here. Although by May 27th, there was appended a brief tribute to John Pertwee at the beginning. I have been fortunate to meet a bunch of doctors. Uh, some of them just in kind of meet and greet signing. Some of them getting a chance to hang out at conventions. I have a lot of regret that I never got to meet John Pertwee because, I don't know, he, he just struck me as an incredible kind of force personality. It's a weird thing. I've never met him, but I have briefly worn one of his cloaks. Oh, one of cool. the cloaks that he wore as the costume. That was actually quite an emotional moment for me. That was that was quite something. I mean, do you want to talk about the Doctor Who thing now? I know we we get it at the end of the month, but we can we can touch upon it now instead. Planet Earth, nineteen ninety nine. He's back, and it's about time. It's Who are you? I am. The Doctor! In the fight for eternity. By midnight tonight, this planet will be pulled inside out. There can only be one master. I never liked this planet, Doctor. Paul McGann is Doctor Who. Don't panic! Everything is under control! Monday, the 27th of May on BBC One. I mean, we talked a At lot about, it. about <laughs> this. <laughs> when it was on Games Master. Yeah, when the Games Master Dalek test footage showed up. But... Uh, I don't know. Honestly, I think stay tuned to, for a new CP Extra on the TV movie because, hey, it's a way of me getting you to actually watch some Doctor Who. And really, I think that would be the best way to go through it. I don't think it's as bad as a lot of people make out. Uh, it didn't do well in the viewing figures in the US. It only got five to six million viewers, 9% share of the audience. However, over here, when it was broadcast on Monday, the 27th of May, 8.30pm, it scored over nine million viewers like a 75% audience appreciation score, which ain't that shabby. That's pretty good. I remember in 1996, for all the positivity I tried to hold for as much as I enjoyed that TV movie, I knew that this was a one and done. 
Uh, there was a lot of things I liked about it. I actually quite liked the John Debney semi-pen score. It was him and a couple of underlings. I didn't mind the new rendition of the theme music. I thought Paul McGann was great casting. I have immensely enjoyed his take on the role in the Big Finish audios. And I thought the design, the interior of the TARDIS, with its kind of very much Jules Verne time machine feel, steampunk, if you will, lots of like stained wood and brass fixtures. I thought it was up until that point the most beautiful that that set has ever looked it like it truly felt bigger on the inside it felt like this was an entire world inside so much love went into it despite all the studio uh, interference i enjoyed it i still enjoyed it it sucked that it never became what it could have been uh, especially given the interesting time we had going through that story bible uh, on the same day that John Pertwee passed away, the Manic Street Preachers released Everything Must Go, which is, I would say, that's my Manic Street Preachers era. I like stuff prior to the Holy Bible. I didn't get on with the Holy Bible. It was just too much for me. I loved Everything Must Go, and I loved most of everything that followed. You know, But Everything Must Go was just this amazing musical epiphany, celebration, uh, morning, all these different things rolled into one. Still, many of the songs had Richie Edwards' fingerprints all over them and indeed credits. What an album. Also, how do we not have more number one singles from this album? I know. That's why I wanted to note down that the album came out because we don't have any number one singles for it. I have bought this album on tape, on CD, I think on mini disc, on vinyl at least twice. And I've got the anniversary set downstairs as well. And it's not an album I will ever get tired of. But did you get tired of our UK number one on the 25th of May? It's the Eurovision 1996 entry, Gina G's Ooh Ah. Just a little bit. <laughs> very, very good. This song was a lot of fun. And also I remember it because it was another song that was played on repeat at that winter's mop fair. This and Saturday Nights, you know, they were, they were songs that when they came out in the following mop fair you kind of got this weird never-ending loop of the song as you walked down the streets between the different fair rides and you had the different kind of Wurlitzers and all that kind of stuff that just all had this blaring out of their PAs. It makes me think of school discos. Like, that is what this is. It This is 1996 school disco. Ooh, ah, just a little bit. And as you mentioned there, Saturday nights as well. That It's proper. It, it takes me right back. I can visualise the school hall of my primary school at where all those school discos took place. And even in Eurovision, it finished in eighth place, which doesn't sound that great. But then you remember how we did in Eurovision for a long, long time until really this past year. Yeah, they've ruined that Netflix joke now. It is a great song, but you UK, so no points. Now, that's bloody ruined that joke now. But we're going to round off our countdown of songs and movies with our UK box office number one on May 26th, Muppet Treasure Island. Centuries ago, a legendary treasure was buried on a remote island. And there's only one living soul daring enough to find it. Hello, everyone. Captain Abraham Smollett is taking command. This voyage has begun. To wherever the wind may take us. Hurry, Rizzo! I'm going as fast as I can. But there's trouble afoot. Beware the one-legged man. <laughs> He's the one to fear. <gasps> Long John Silver. At your service. One leg, Jim. Count him one. Now, 
The captain is being pursued by pirates. Pirates? We're sailing for buried treasure. We're gonna be rich. We're gonna be dead. <laughs> Surrounded by danger. Terrific. Captured by crazed wild pigs and sacrificed hideously before a pagan altar. Are we lucky or what? And haunted by his past. Bonsoir, mes amis. Smalley, can it be you? Uh, old girlfriend. Oh, I'm so pissed. We don't get this in the main timeline and we only get it for one week. This is one of two ideas that could have been the Muppets follow on to Christmas Carol. It was either Muppet Treasure Island or possibly it was going to be a King Arthur King based Ar- one. Yeah, King Arthur was the other idea. They wanted to do a classic story. And yeah, it was either Treasure Island or it was going to be a King Arthur tale. Oh my God. Treasure Island was the right choice. In fact, It was not the massive hit that Christmas Carol was. In fact, it kind of grossed 34 million on a budget of 31. Did great guns on video later because we had at least one copy of it in the house. Probably two, one for me, one for my younger siblings. But so much about this movie, it's much more pure Muppets than a Muppet Christmas Carol. A Muppet Christmas Carol is a traditional Christmas Carol film starring the Muppets. Muppet Treasure Island is the Muppets freeform jazz interpreting Treasure Island. I mean, as can be said that up until quite late in production, there was no human Jim Hawkins character. Gonzo and Rizzo were playing two separate characters, one called Jim, the other called Hawkins. And Disney were like, yeah, we, we, need, we need someone in this that isn't Tim Curry or a puppet. Yeah, that's basically, they were going to use them exactly as they were used in Christmas Carol just to be the the talking heads, the bits of the audience, this and the other. But as you say, like in the end, they were like, now let's put a human face into this amongst these other Muppets, so it isn't just Tim Curry being his most Tim Curry. He is having a whale of a time on the set of this movie. Fourth wall, Luke. What's a fourth wall? <laughs> we just don't know. When you start a song by going, sing up, lads, this is my only musical number. <laughs> and also a first for a Muppet film? of someone actually dying on screen. Billy Connolly, in a wonderful little role right at the beginning of the film, literally dies on screen to the point where Rizzo the Rat and Gonzo go, hey, this is a kid's movie. Why is this man dying on screen? But brilliant placing of that dialogue because it immediately diffuses the situation yeah it's a fantastic film I, I i'm probably more christmas carol than i am treasure island but i actually might watch treasure island tomorrow off the back of this because i've been meaning to have it on it's on disney plus it's very easily accessible watch it with the kid your kid will be mad for it i love the muppets so much and, and i absolutely adore this movie it is still really really funny as well my favorite bit of trivia however i read off the wikipedia page however was this i'm just going to read this verbatim the Hormel Foods Corporation, the creators of Spam, sued Jim Henson Productions for using the name Spam for one of the film's tribal pig characters. The judge dismissed their suit on September 22nd after a trial for failure to prove damages, noting, quote, One might think Hormel would welcome the association with a genuine source of pork. They continue, When Spam later appeared in a racing game, Muppet Race Mania, he was credited as Pig Chief. Amazing. It's a great, great film. And if you've, if you've never seen Muppet Treasure Island, go out of your way to check it out. That's going to do it for the bits and bobs of news that we have. Of What's going on in the magazine? Well, in Japan, Sega have announced that they are dropping the price of the Saturn 
with a new model of the Saturn. The Mark II is coming out. It's been made possible by mass production techniques and a slight design change and will retail for $150 less than the current $350. They've also confirmed that this new pricing policy will be adopted by Sega in America, although no firm date or prices have been set. In Europe, it gets even vaguer, with Sega's HQ in London insisting that there are no plans to change their price policy. This may sound disappointing, but in the past, Sega UK have been known to move swiftly to combat any price changes. Remember when Sony launched a PlayStation, the Saturn price was dropped almost immediately? However, in Japan, there is no such thing as VAT or retailer markup. Plus, of course, Sega Japan don't have to worry about exchange rates. All this will make any big price cuts harder to implement for Sega UK. The new move is being seen as an attempt by Sega to take full advantage of the delays in Nintendo's launch of the N64. After all, if more people buy Saturns at this low price, they will be reluctant to go out and buy a new piece of hardware when the N64 hits the streets. It's a smart move. It doesn't work, but it is a smart move in theory. In theory. In theory. Sony have yet to respond to this new Sega price point, but you can bet your butt that they will. The price war goes on. It could have been a big win for them. And I, I don't think they were wrong in doing so either. It's just, I, th- I think the damage has already been done by this point. And one last piece of news relating to the PlayStation and also relating to Japan. Capcom Unleash Evil. Resident Evil on the PlayStation has yes. been released in Japan in the last couple of weeks. The game is just brilliant and features your character roaming around a spooky old mansion battling with zombies and demons in the most bloody fashion. Without doubt, Resident Evil, known as Biohazard in Japan, is the most gruesome thing ever to hit the PlayStation with gameplay that combines the alone-in-the-dark style 3D moving camera viewpoint with some vintage Doom blood and guts action. Can we really call Doom vintage? Come on, guys. It's been, what, two years? I was going to say, we're like probably into year three of Doom at this point. When it gets its release through Virgin in a couple of months, this one will no doubt storm the charts and become a huge hit. We'll have a review for you next issue. I have just actually started listening to the audiobook Itchy Tasty the unauthorized history of Resident Evil with interviews from the people that made it actually. So I'm really looking forward to diving more into the world of Resident Evil because we get it as a, you know, a, a video game number one coming up fairly soon, but exciting time the Resi's here. So I think what we're going to do is hit pause here because we have only just reached June and we've still got to get through to October. There is also an ancillary reason why we're going to split this into two. This morning, I tested positive for COVID. You may hear it a little bit in my voice now. Um, I've been coughing and sniffling a little bit through the record, all of which will be edited out. But my voice is going to get worse before it gets better. So not only do we get to continue going into this in depth, but it also means I buy an extra week to get my voice back. There's still quite a bit to go through uh, in the second half of this, but I think this is the first time that we are splitting this into... Well, it's definitely the first time we've ever split this into two episodes. It's also the first time I think we've had so much to cover and also the first time that one of us has got COVID. Yeah, well, yes. It's amazing that we've gone through this far with this happening for the first time. Whoopsie. Whoopsie. Uh, But that is going to do it for this episode. So we'll be back in seven days' time with another edition of Episode Zero. You can find us on Twitter at underconsolepod on Instagram at under.console and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. Also, you can join our Discord where there is lots of chatter going on. We've got some interesting feedback on our recent Bad Influence episode going on. People talking about whether they did or didn't own an Atari ST. People listening to Cheap Show. People watching 
various Doctor Who related things, it appears. All sorts of stuff going on. Really, really vibrant community. We have new people joining all the time. Why don't you become one of them? And you can become one of our Patreon backers over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra and our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. And at the £5 level, you will get next week's episode, which is the second half of this, one week early and ad-free. But at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do they get? At the £10 level, they get our golden glittery under-consultation mug, stuffed with stickers, badges, retro sweeties and retro trading cards. Although, if you do actually join us within the next week or so, delivery might be delayed until I'm allowed to go to the post office again. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boom, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew Cummings, Adam D, Paul, and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.